Welcome to Carito Connects. I'm your host, Jen, and I've been conversing with friends around the world about life challenges and impactful moments. Conversations on this platform look at answering the questions, how we overcome challenges and how our experiences shape who we are and the work we do today. I hope this work can inspire you on your own personal and individual journey. Let's dive right in. Hello, my guest today is Elena Liao, founder of Tay Company in New York City. Did I pronounce that right, Elena? Yes, you did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, Hi, you Elena. Um, good morning to you, uh, sitting in New York City. Um, welcome to Carita Connect. I am thrilled to be able to connect with Elena through a few other mutual uh, former retail corporate managing big box apparel retailers with no former background or association with Taiwanese tea, except for her Taiwanese American heritage. Elena decided to leave corporate in 2015 and start her tea business with no prior experience at all. So you might have guessed it. Today, Elena is going to share with us what it took to make that switch and take company in the Big Apple. Okay. Yes, that's that is the. Um, it sounds scary when you like uh, summarize it like that. It felt so intentional and goal oriented, but you know, it wasn't really that uh, targeted, if you will, because that sounds a little scary. Let's drop everything and just start a new thing in New York City. You know. Um, so should I sort of give you a sense of how, or like how it was, or what it was like to? kind of leave the journey of leaving that, um, my corporate job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think when, you know, initially when I invited you and we were discussing about topics, um, I think Mm -hmm. you um, told me that I think for you, one of the challenges or some of the impactful moments for you was making that decision, right? So Mm -hmm. I I guess maybe you can start with sharing with us, you know, your pre-company um, career mm-hmm. and journey at the time, right? So like many of us, you know, you, you go through school, you get a degree, maybe you get two more degrees, and then you do, maybe you go into corporate. Um, and at some point, maybe you decided, that's not for me. <laughs> right, right. Totally. Exactly, actually. So yeah, to- I certainly can <clears throat> talk about the pre uh, pre life that I had or what the life that I envisioned myself to have back then. Um, so I, uh, when I graduated college, my school or my classmates or peers are very, um, I guess everyone's very sort of motivated and everyone it's mostly at the time, you know, you're either a consultant, you're a banker or you're a lawyer or you're a doctor. So these are sort of the respectable outlets after you left school um, you have some jo- like a job marketing that was like kind of interesting. Um, and I, in my trajectory growing up, I had some sort of fine art inclination. So I did some art program when I was a child um, in Taiwan, actually. Um, it's like a special program just for uh, in the local school system, just for art. And then I kind of d- developed some into it. But at some point I understood that I wasn't as a, as a, what nature gave me, like my genetics like, d- is not what an artist is made of an artist. Like I don't really, I, I don't have very original point of view. Uh, so I can't be an artist, but I do 
for a long time understood that I have a potentially a level, I can appreciate beautiful things, right? I could be potentially a curator or potentially I, I could sort of have an eye, but you could put it that way um, mm-hmm. to seek out uh, beautiful things. So I thought maybe I would do that. But then as you go through school, you really, you know, I didn't go to a lot, uh, an art school. My family's like, you shouldn't go to an art school. So I didn't even apply to go to any law school, uh, art school. So that I wound up um, just getting a regular bachelor degree in communications and economics or whatever. It's the, the major is that for people who don't know what they want, that's what you major in, <laughs> economics or communications. I was like, maybe I do both. It sounds like fine. Um, and then... I graduated thinking that I would, I got into retail by accident. I had an internship that was um, in Taiwan. Actually, I did all my internships in Taiwan because I was uh, visiting my family. And one of the interior designer that I had interned in my high school years introduced me to her friend who does uh, skincare, pharmaceutical skincare in Taiwan. And I worked with them and they're basically like a vendor for like the convenience store, uh, pharmacy stores. So I kind of interned in that uh, in that company in the world of retail, and so I did that for a summer. And then when I graduated, I found I got a job in retail, which I, but has very little understanding of what retail really is. I just thought you would pay me, and I can live in New York. Great, I'll take it. It was probably <laughs> my only job that I got. So I was in this training program, and then um, and I was like an assistant buyer for you know a little bit. And then soon after that, I don't know what it is, like I'm good at math or, you know, like you kind of just, they moved me. So I became a planning person, which by that just means you work with the buyers and you work on budgeting and you manage the inventory and um, kind of the financial responsibility from a merchandise standpoint. It's kind of a role between buyers who's product driven and finance who's you know profitability driven. So I'm sort of the middle role. And I did that for 10 years. Um and in the middle of that, and I think from even starting off school, the idea is that I would just work for a big company and I would just climb the ladder and, you know, kind of how, like how I did school all along and maybe be an executive one day or maybe just, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know in my early 20s, I wasn't thinking that much. And then midway through is 2008, I think maybe it was like four or five years into working. And then the... Um, a financial crisis happened and we uh, basically everyone in retail it was really bad. Um, and I happened to sit at my desk. This, this I went through diff- a few different companies in New York and the one that I was with um, during the financial crisis was, was Ann Taylor. And I, it's like a sort of like teachers actually wear a lot of Ann Taylor. It's like, I don't know yeah, if you yeah. know the brand. Yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with Ann Taylor. <laughs> I'm nice, conservative, um, but young kind of thing. And I happened to always sit outside of big vice president or president's offices. And during that time, what I saw was firsthand when things go south, like these executives are the first to go. Like I've seen maybe like four or five leaving, like walking out of their, escorted out of their office, not because they were fired, because they were laid off. And these people really had been kind of lived at Ann Taylor and brought up by Ann Taylor and were the ones that kind of made a glorious, been there for decades or more and raise her family on Aunt Taylor. And I kind of started to understand that 
this idea of being a corporate career, having this corporate career track, maybe not something that I um, aspire to because I saw how kind of easily you you don't as a, as an employee, however, ranking you are. There's a level of lack of agency that you can't really control. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of the start of it, and also like rounds and rounds and layoff, layoff, layoff. And my team was, I don't know, 10 people and then it became me. And then my department was eliminated. I was laid off in the fourth round of layoff. This is happening. Like layoffs, lay, layoffs are happening right. every two, three months. It's a scary time. Um, but that's sort of when I was laid off, I spent a few, maybe two months looking for a job, my next job. Um, but also kind of reconsidering you know, if I didn't do this, what would I do? I don't have particular skills. I don't have, you know, other, I didn't really think about go to school, but just kind of thinking about what would be the next thing. And that's when I saw the third wave of coffee come to New York. So Blue Bottle was one of them. Intelligentsia was one of them and my friend was like, Do you want to go learn how to make a pour over? I'm like, what's a pour over? And you know, <laughs> that was like a very new idea in 2009. And so right, right. I got into it and like I was unemployed. I had all the time in the world. So I'm learning how to make pour overs. I'm ordering, I'm reading, you know, about coffee beans online. And then I but I'm drinking tea. I've grown up in Taiwan. You know, you drink tea. My family is a big heavy user, if you will. We don't really drink a lot of water. That's not so good. Uh, But everyone drank tea. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking to myself, like, oh, maybe it would be cool as a fun thing if I do on the side, just like, what if I make tea the same way that they make coffee, which is kind of a little nerdy, a little interesting, a little cleaner, (laughs) um, very accessible. Like, what if I did that? Because I, in all my office years, everyone would be like, what is that you're drinking? Like, is that uh, like, like everyone's, in your- everyone's drinking coffee and you're drinking tea, right? Yeah, I mean, I drink coffee too. I don't discriminate between my caffeines. Like, I'll have a coffee in the morning, but after I only have one because I can't really do more than one. And then afternoon on, I'm like tea all the way. And so, and I usually have it in a mug and I'm, tea leaves are in it. I'm just like drinking it like Chinese taxi drivers, you know, like I just add hot water. And it's, people see it and what is that in your cup? I'm like, it's tea. And they're like, is it? I'm like, yeah. Uh, like, did you take the leaves outside and put it in your, in your they're like, where did you get this? And I was like, I don't know, my mom sent them. Um, so because, I, I now kind of forgot the details, but I remember doing that time while I was still kind of looking for my next job because you do need a job to live in New York, um, that I was starting to look at this world like maybe I can do something about it. Um, and the one other thing that I felt that, potentially this is a good idea is because I learned that when you're in corporate America, if you're good at something and you've done that thing, like in my, his, in my background was planning, merchandise planning. If I was good at that, you just are stuck doing that. It's really hard for me to move around. I mean, I tried, I've tried to become a buyer. Um, I moved from domestic business to international business when I had a different job um, after the layoff I worked for limited brands or L brands um, I went from domestic Victoria's Secret international or Victoria's Secret in international I try to do merch like I try to branch out because I just thought that I have more to offer than an analytical mind right so 
but it was difficult because you either you make a very lateral move and you make less money or you um, start from the bottom and you have to have someone who sponsored you in the corporate chain to um, so just, and it was difficult. And I just was like, by the time I have, I can maybe get to a level where I can exercise all sides of my brains. It's I'm probably like 55, you know, you kind of, cause you've got to go through the ladder. Um, but if I want to do that now, it becomes really difficult. So maybe this tea thing will at least take the edge off. I could have some creative outlet in this world um, that I find interesting. And it doesn't, there's no pressure. So I sort of paralleled that for a few years. Um, I worked at VS for five years and changed. So probably for five years or so, I was doing this on the side and just something I did on the weekend or when I have time. Um, so what did, what did you do, like, as to begin, like you said, you did it on the side. So what was that side? Like, was it like you were... Oh, I take myself very seriously. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I was highly, highly motivated um, because it was fun. Like, so the first thing I thought was, well, actually, I had a, a college friend that was supposed to do this with me. And she was in New York for at the time that I was, she was here when I was laid off. She worked in banking. She's still an equity firm. Um, and then as I was doing this, we were doing all the, you know, we're really good students, right? We like do all the research. We're looking at all the competitive brands. Like we look at, we you do it like a school project, like a group right. project. Right. <laughs> I don't know whatever we're in class there. And then, but when we, um, and when it comes to, I, I don't know how it went. She moved to China. Her job centered Asia. So she oh, left. She's like, I can't do this with you. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I have to. And then I had a job. So it's like, I actually put it away maybe like a year or two. But in the different time that I pull it out and was doing it, I realized that the world of tea, the more I learn about it. And it's funny because I drink all the tea the whole time, but I never really understood what exactly it is. I remember as a child, my parents would drive me to my visit my grandparents and you see tea fields. And I understand tea fields make tea. But I didn't understand, I didn't know. Like Google literally the first thing I did was like Google what is tea and what is the difference between green teas, oolong teas, black tea, etc. Um, so I understood the more I learned that the body of knowledge in the the product is just too too vast you know you could there's a body of knowledge on the making of tea there's a very large cultural elements to it there is a a big sort of servicing kind of the yeah ceremonial the art, the, the art right yeah yeah, yeah. Servicing yeah. Tea. so there's so many different aspects and I didn't feel like I could be and have any authority or legitimacy um if I try to t t take on the whole thing, like I couldn't be the very well versed in Taiwanese teas, Japanese teas, Chinese tea. I mean, it's, it's actually, that takes a lifetime and more to, I think, really get to each, um, each regions and cultural you know, in depth. So kind of in the sense, like the more I learn, the less I feel like um, I know and the more uncomfortable I become. So I thought maybe I'll narrow hone in on just Taiwanese teas because I'm from there. We have really good access there. My parents live there. Um, 
my grandfather has a tea producing friend. Everyone has a tea producing friend in Taiwan, turns out. Um, <laughs> so it felt, felt, it felt like, oh, maybe I start there because at least uh-huh. that's accessible for me to. And it's such a, I mean, if I look back, maybe I, I don't think I'll do, do it differently, but it was really kind of a silly thing to do because Taiwan has the least commercial value, Taiwanese teas in the West. Taiwan makes like less than 1% of the world tea production, small production. The teas are expensive. They're good. Very right. good. I almost want to throw in after you said that, like if anyone is interested, they can watch the Netflix series, right? The right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a whole like Netflix series about Taiwanese tea. And I think they talk about it in that in that film too. The, the oh, did I? Oh, I didn't know. Maybe that's only available in Taiwan. I would love to watch it. Um, so... That was kind of the point where I kind of hone in on, let me just do this one part, which is Taiwanese teas. And Taiwan is mainly known for oolong tea. So that is like, not let alone the smallest producing region, the most obscure and small commercial value at the mar- on the market uh, category of tea. I'm like, that's the one I want. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. but it was fascinating. It was interesting. And I read and literally just, there's no tea school. There's not, I spoke to some tea companies here. They'll tell you and they'll teach you what they know, but in a commercial setting to the best of their ability, but it wasn't like a school curriculum that you could follow. Um, there's not a graduate degree anywhere that you could kind of look for this and learn. And so it just kind of had to be a thing. I visit people. I would go with my mom um, in Taiwan and she would like look up resource for me. And we would literally, when I'm in Taiwan, I'll visit these people. And then, so that's kind of the start. And then eventually I start selling some teas for, at the restaurants at the time, my husband now, but then boyfriend is a chef um, at these fancy restaurants. So he introduces me to the, um, to these Psalms and I try to sell some Oriental beauty. That's the one we sell to them, um, which is like a highly oxidized oolong from Xinzhu, from the Northern part of Taiwan. And we were selling them to a restaurant. And because of that, I had to legally incorporate a company in order to have this um, financial, right. small uh-huh. little financial uh-huh. transactions. The exchange. Uh, yeah, to the legal exchange. So I did that. And then um, then I went to this. My neighbor was running a business plan competition. And then my friends, who are all kind of in the same cultural group as the Taiwanese Merchant Association and professional, a young professional um, Taiwanese group called TAP. And they were running their like very first business plan competition. And my neighbor, who she lived in the same building. I, I, I still do actually. Um, and she said, you should do it. Like you should compete. And I was like, I'll try. And that kind of be, I feel like formalized things for me a little bit more. Because I actually, to do a business plan competition, you actually have to have a plan. Um, and I thought it would be a good milestone. Or It's like school. Someone will keep you in check. There's due dates, there's timelines. you got to do this thing. So then I did that. I actually won, surprisingly. I was like, really? Um, but I did bribe the ju- judge. I gave them to you to drink at the competition. <laughs> so I think maybe that's why. And I mean, these are like older judges, like they don't, some of the like technology things, maybe it's a little too foreign for them. I don't so, know. I was surprised. Can I ask what was your, what was your business plan? Like, so the, so you 
you competed and this was still like your pet project on the side, right? Because you were still working at Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. And, <laughs> you were still working at Victoria's Secret. You um yeah, you went into this competition and you had a business plan. So what did what was your business plan that you, you pitched put in and, and you won? I you know what's interesting? It's actually the spirit of what I was presenting is not far from what I'm doing today, if I really think about that. The mechanics of how I do it changed because how that was a first iteration and I understood now, now looking back, like that wasn't going to work. But uh, <laughs> the, the plan itself was to make, create a brand that is not super high end and that is not super mass market. And that's where summer sits in the middle, that it's accessible but it's not to the degree where it's impossible for people to connect with. Um, and to me, tea has always been something that's very democratic. It's always something that is free flowing in Taiwan. Whoever's house you go to, there's tea every, it's, there's tea everywhere. And so I didn't like how in New York at the time, or even U.S. at the time, you either get really good quality tea from these like few, a handful, still kind of a handful that are so kind of not only are they expensive, expensive is not even really the reason that I was like, I don't really like that. It's hard to, it became spiritual and you have to have a little cult is not the right word, but it just, it's not for your everyday person. It's exclusive. It's like an exclusive, exclusive experience. Not everyone can get access to it. Right, right. You need, maybe need to read Chinese. You may need to have an obsession with Eastern culture, or you might need to have your chakras and the cheese all aligned before you can sort of commit to this company. So it felt a little hard. Then the other side is all tea bags, mass markets, whatever you find in the grocery store, and blended and scented and all bad. So I wanted somewhere in between, and I wanted the product and the brand to be very accessible. The same way I see, I saw Blue Bottle, I saw you know these third wave roasters and coffee companies are doing. So I want somewhere something like that in the world of tea. And um, there's an element of making this tea or this experience very accessible for every everyday person. But I did it differently. In the business plan competition, I was like blending it with some rose petals or things to make it accessible uh -huh. uh, because that's what kind of Western palette is more familiar with on a very kind of foreign product, which is oolong teas. Um, so I think to that, in that sense, the mechanics or the spirit of like what I was trying to get at is pretty similar to what we do now. Right. Except I do it differently now. Now we actually, instead of doing blends and, you know, not super high quality teas, we bring very good quality Taiwanese tea here. Because I learned that a palette is a palette and they're the same everywhere in the world. If you give them very good product, they know. They Even if you know nothing about tea, if I put a very good quality version and a mediocre quality, the, a human palette, whoever they are, wherever they're from, will be able to distinguish what is probably better than the other, 95% sure. Um, and I thought if there's so much mass market quality, mediocre stuff out there, let's bring in the really good stuff. That's very hard to get. Um, so, and then we trick, yeah, go ahead. So, so 
when, after you won the competition, when was it that you said, all right, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. To- <laughs> for a long time, I wasn't. Like for a long time, I felt inadequate. For a long time, I thought, this is crazy. But I also had a, quite a demanding job in my corporate international job at the time. And it was, I kind of had this struggle of, I want to spend more time on my own project, but I just didn't. I would work too much and I wasn't even getting paid that much, quite honestly, now thinking back. And I just had this struggle and I had this gut feeling in my uh, corporate job that every kind of every new position or even if I got promoted or moved to another category or moved to another desk, I would have this gut feeling like this is not fine. Like this is temporary. I wouldn't even unpack my bag. Like my, if I move desk, I would, I just leave them in the drawer. I don't even, the ba- in the bags. Cause I just didn't feel like this is where it all needs to be for me. And I knew even if I went out and looked for a new job, Somehow, I just had a gut feeling like I, this is not going to do it. And that took business plan was maybe what, 2012. And this is by 2014, 2000, 2014 is when I'm really kind of getting to the edge of like, I really, and I also was getting too stressed out for this job that I didn't really want it anymore. Um, and the two people, one is my mother, the other one's my college friend. I had two separate conversations with both of them. And um, at the time, I was, what, 33? So my mom said to me, it's like, you know, just, just give your tea thing a try. Because when are you, <laughs> if you keep doing this, you hate yourself from feeling guilty either way, that you're not doing a good job in your corporate world if you're spending some time on this, or you feel bad <clears throat> that your corporate job's taking too much of your time that you don't have a sense of self and you couldn't do it the thing you wanted. So just take some time or you can wait until you're 43. And to me, the idea of being 43 was very daunting. And I said, oh gosh, you're right. If I keep going, it's going to be 10 years later and I'm still doing this, you know, back and forth. And then my other friend, her name is Mabel. Mabel told me that you know, Elena, like, we're going to work. Like, these girls like us, you know, you, you're going to work for, what, 60 years in our lifetime? Take two years. Think of it as business school. Um, it probably costs the startup, it probably costs as much as business school. And, you know, or if you like to live in the mountains with the monks that make the tea that you like, or just like, go live there for a year. Like, we'll work. You'll find a way. Just think of it that way. And the trajectory is not as short as you think it is. And so those two conversations, I felt, really kind of put me in a place where I felt more comfortable to give up everything I know, health insurance, paid vacation, whatever, to kind of, maybe I'll just try this new thing. And I didn't know really how. I just knew that by April of 2015, I have to have resigned because I was going to go away for three weeks to really source Taiwanese teas. And I've done some small trips before, but three weeks at the time to leave my job to go away for three weeks was like, I was not allowed to do that. So I had to resign before then. Uh And it was struggle. I remember like in the copy room with my friend, she's like, can you give me a pep talk? I need to resign today. 
oh, I need to buy my ticket tomorrow. So can you just give me? Um, and then after I was then after I resigned, things sort of just progressed and kind of, you know, still a little difficult. Nothing is easy to do business in New York, business anywhere. I feel like it's hard. Um, so that was kind of the long story of like how I went from this like crazy, I mean, I don't know, straightforward corporate job into this. It's like a struggle to kind of finally like cut the ties. Um, and I even let it like run on. Like, I resigned in March. I left in September because I was like, oh, I'll stay on to accumulate cash one second. It's like, I feel bad. Just kind of like, bye. See you later. You know, so I stayed on for months after I resigned. Um, but I did take that trip. And what did you, what did you learn on that trip? And how, and I guess my, I guess another question I wanted to ask you was when you did eventually leave in September of that year, mm-hmm. um, what, what, and I guess your concept for Tay was quite solid by then in terms of tea, oolong tea um, in New York city. Were you always going to have a shop or were you just going to do online? Like in terms when of, I, yeah how it went that way. I didn't know what I was really going to do. But at that time when I left, I knew, because I tried this different ways throughout the year, like when I first incorporated and were selling to restaurants, I tried to sell it to like other tea shops. And then I understood like, they don't care about oolong teas. Customers are not interested in this genre of tea because they don't know anything about it and they haven't tried it. And what's out there is not that great. So as a retailer myself from this, that background, I think I thought like I'm probably better suited if I am on the customer facing end. And I think that's where my strength or what I like doing, not even strength, what I like doing. Because <laughs> if I left something I didn't really like to do something, I better do something that I really actually enjoy or I think I can thrive at doing. Because if I, you know, would just then it makes no sense. So that I need to be creating a brand to directly speak to the end use consumer instead of a company, a tea company and being their sourcing liaison of Taiwan. You know, that to me, it doesn't sound very fun. Sounds like a lot of FDA and importation, you know, that doesn't sound fun. Sourcing is fun. Um, and so that brought me to creating a web online store which I already had when I left the job. Um, and we were selling like little things. I used to go to the corporate office and mail our teas out of the FedEx uh, <laughs> in Victoria's Secret. So, and the return address, it would have returned to the Victoria's Secret head office. Um, <laughs> side business. So, it's like a side hustle. It really is a side hustle. Um, and then I, when I left, I resigned in April, March, went on a trip in uh, probably most of April, came back in May. And at that point, knowing what I knew, which is I need to be customer facing, the next thing I know how to do is um, you got I got to do this in person because the you can sell things online all you want, but like for something that is this obscure, right? It's yeah. like oolong tea. I mean, not even Taiwanese people know what it is. Um, it needs to have a feel. It needs to be in person. You need to smell it, drink it, try it, and have that uh, 
kind of exposure in order for this to kind of transaction to work. And could so you, could, you, could you just really quickly for those who are listening to this episode who might not know what oolong tea is, like you said, could you, you know, in your elevator quick pitch, uh, explain what oolong tea is and, and the difference between oolong and, and other teas that, you know, are yeah, totally. Like- yeah, in uh, tech, te- technically, and not technically, true, truthfully, uh, I didn't even know this until um, when I Googled, you know, what is tea? Um, that all tea, green, oolong, matcha, white, black, pu'eres, those cakes, they're all made from the same plant. Um, the plant is called Camellia sinensis. It's like a generic name is the tea plant, of course. And like any species or you know, apples or grapes, you have different varieties um, within the Camellia sinensis uh, family. So there are thousands and thousands of, and we call them cultivars that make, that is one, some are better for making green, some are better for making black teas um, or oolong teas or what have you. Um, And it's really the processing difference that distinguish or put these teas into categories of green, oolong, white, and black. So green tea and black tea is on the edges of processing. So green tea is non-oxidized. Black tea is fully oxidized. Oxidized meaning when you cut open an apple, it browns. That's oxidized, uh, the oxidizing. Um, when you pick the leaves from the stems from a tea tree, it browns. Um, when you don't want it to brown, you want to make a green tea, you heat it right away and you kill the enzyme. It doesn't interact with the oxygen in the air. It be, stays bright green. Then you dry it. You've made green tea. In the world of black teas, you let it brown in a controlled environment all the way through. And then you dry it and make black tea. So there are the ends, non-oxidized, fully oxidized. Um, oolong, by definition, is partially oxidized. So it's a range of profile between the green tea and the black tea. If you think of it, you know, with an idea of green tea is pretty generic. There's some sort of grass notes to it. It's usually green. The notion of black tea, also, they're pretty more singular in note as, as far as it's a multi-black tea. Right. Yeah. Oolong has yeah. this range, right? You can have lightly oxidized oolong that's more like a green meat somewhere in the middle, more oxidized oolong, like almost like a black. Um, so there, it's a, oolong is kind of a, lack of a better word, it's like a genre. It's like a, a scale and a range. And you have white tea, which is probably the most primitive way of tea making. You harvest the leaves, you let it dry, you've made white tea. White teas can be some somewhat oxidized. Um, then you have pueras, which is our you know, wild yeah. tea trees, harvest it, made into green teas and pressed into cakes. So these are kind of all the... Matcha is a green tea that's been ground into powder and you whisk it into this frothy thing. Uh, so when you drink matcha... <laughs> actually like eat the leaves that's the only one that you actually ingest the full leaves itself versus everything else you brew and you okay. drink the infusion okay. from the brew got it thank you for that real quick one-on-one I'll, I'll let you go back to talking about customer facing and how you figured that part out oh yeah yeah and so okay, and so giving nice. experience of Taiwanese oolong tea right and bringing your culture and heritage to New York and and focusing on that yeah the the um at that time, I didn't have a, I just had an online store, which does very little volume. That's something you I couldn't live on. Um, but then I also realized there's more than just me trying to do this. There's a lot of people who have the same idea of wanting, not necessarily sell Taiwanese teas, but there's a lot of tea websites. Um, and I thought a real store would be a good idea. And then I've been looking and walking in the neighborhood that I like and just walking and looking, walking and looking. And finally, I saw this tiny little store um 
at some point it was probably a, a, an apartment and it's not, there's no street access. You have to walk up into the building to the uh, residential building. And then it's on the first floor, slightly elevated. Um, and it's in the historical district of the West village in downtown Manhattan. And I sort of felt that it was so 300 square feet. It's tiny that it's manageable that if I had a big store, I probably, I can't really commit to the rent. I couldn't commit to all those things as to build it up, whatever. So I found literally the smallest space you possibly could find in a very historical kind of like it probably was for hippies in the seventies. So a little more tolerant um, of culture and uh, the culture, I would say there's a lot of artists, movie people, writers that live in that neighborhood. And that's how it started. I signed the lease in June and then I left in September because I was opening in October. So I worked at VS all the way to the last two weeks or so before we opened. Wow. Um, just so I could have, I mean, lack of a better word, accumulate cash. That's like all I thought of. Like, yes, pay me as much as I can. Yeah, as much I could get because I'm not, I'm going to go unemployed for a little while. Um, and so that's how kind of the store began. Once the store started, um, it was hard in the first year or two, meaning like you would have the store open. Doesn't mean people, just because you have a store open doesn't mean people will show up. Right. Um, but my husband, oh, at the time, I don't think, did we, we married, we got married really soon after, but he is, was, wasn't supposed to help me. Um, it wasn't, we weren't supposed to do this together. He was supposed to just cook at different restaurants and um, he just wound up between jobs, started helping me. What's that? You're supposed to be the chef in the relationship, right? Just continue to cook at different restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we have an income. But then he was like, no, I think I'm just going to help you. And I said, oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and but he was actually became a really kind of a symbiotic relationship between the two of us. And, and for anyone listening, I really don't recommend working with your spouse. But um, it's very it's one, of the, one of the hardest things I've had to do. But the, uh, the food component became like the integral element of what makes a tea room very accessible. There was a day I realized, um, it's the day my friend, a journalist friend, wrote about the Linzer cookies that we made, it's pineapple Linzer. It's inspired by Taiwanese pineapple cakes. Um, but it's a thing that we've done and, you know, I've done some outdoor markets on weekends um, before we opened the store and for I would make those and we would sell them. People love them. And we sell, we sold, I made them at the uh, tea room and my friend Max wrote this beautiful article on Savor and I saw the people coming in for the cookie was this kind of like the crowd I never really uh, seen before in the world of tea. Because when you open a tea store, tea people came. And then when you have a cookie, like cookie people, food people came. And the yeah. food people is a lot larger than tea people in America. <laughs> that I was like, oh, my gosh. Like the, I need to really think about, rethink about how I do this. Um, when, and so the, when the cookie people came, were they also intrigued by the tea? Was it like an add-on? You know, like a, I'm here for the, you know, the. Yeah, yeah. The oh would you like a cup of tea to go with that right like it was like a yeah yeah so that was the original um 
intent when we had little markets in the uh, seaport. Like we had little kind of like farmer's market stalls back in the day. That was the intent. Like this thing I'm doing is quite foreign. I had like pots and stuff and little pitchers and cups and things. That was too foreign that um, I said a cookie would make people feel at ease. And tea and cookie makes a lot of sense. Um, So that was the original intent. But then I saw people coming just for cookies. Um, So I was like a little... Am I now a cookie store? Like this beautiful tea room is now a cookie store. Um, yeah, it's a little devastating for me at the time. But it, I get over it because, you know, the, these people pay your bills, right? So um, over time, I mean, I don't remember the details, but over time, I understood that it's, um, it is the holistic experience that is interesting, for that is more interesting and more accessible, right? If I just did really really cool teas. You'll get really cool tea people that loves tea and cares about tea um, or or the ones that self-recognize want to care about tea. Yeah. Uh, but if I had food and I had an experience, an ambiance of being in a tea room, then that market is a lot larger. Um, and if someone said, oh, I want to go there, they have good teas, but I heard there's a very good cookie they do that I want to try it. And it's a beautiful place to sit for a little. Then it became a, a reason, a multiple little reasons to want to visit. And then it became more of a um, destination for people. And then at that point, I um, understood that food and tea and kind of the experience itself uh, is really the what's going to attract people continuously. And that's kind of over different iterations. We've tried to edit ourselves through the pandemic, you know, how we kind of do that to make the tea experience, the brewing experience, the newsletter experience, the packaging, the um, how you eat the snack, what size is the snack, that entire experience should be um, complimentary. There's a playlist that was going around during the pandemic. Um, so people couldn't come to the tea room. They can do a playlist at home to feel like they are in the tea room. So we kind of try to ensure that that accessible experience can be felt at different touch points with Tay so that um, they continue to stay our customers, even though we couldn't open our doors for two years um, and continuously so in different iterations as we now recently reopen. So oh, yay, oh, yay. Yay. I was going to ask month now. I was going to ask during the pandemic, that was another challenging period, right? Like in terms of like not being able to stay open, how do you have experience for your customers? How do you continue to sell tea and your cookies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it became a different. Um, I think we changed our mentality a little bit because of COVID. So before we were very tea room driven. We had some business online, but it wasn't as substantial. Um, and when we had to close the tea room, it became blatantly obvious that online was the only way that we could survive. And people were very supportive. I remember looking at the online volume and I was like, why do I bother opening a store if I could just do this type of sales? You know, <laughs> obviously it's people being very supportive. So it's a little different. Um, 
but because of that, and it was so stretched, this COVID quarantine and the severity of it and New York being the epic center for the, the very beginning that it was scary for people. So like we actually closed before the mandate, um, everything shut down. We got a nice <laughs> time off actually, like working in a real store. It's like a, it's like, it's like taking care of a child. Like it's, you constantly need to babysit it. We don't, we worked a lot. And so it was a good chunk of time off to really rethink, reconsider what we want to do, what is important to us. Um, and then because of the online channel, the whole energy of trying to uh, focus and hone in on just the teas and the snacks and the experience, that kind of um, was more, I would say, blossomed in the in the web world in during the pandemic. Yeah. And now we're just trying well, to I, make both. I found you online. Yeah. Oh, really? Is that <laughs> Well, yeah, because I've been buying tea for a friend, right, who lives in the States. And mm. I was like, oh, I should get Taiwanese tea, right? Right. I'm Taiwanese. And I'm like, I don't, but then I don't want to ship from here, right? Because it's like logistics is such uh. a hot mess now. So I was like, let me Google and see, you know, what places sell Taiwanese tea. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, and then take them. We're like the only one, actually. We're probably the only one. It's like a really oh, small market. That, that was helpful. Yeah, <laughs> and then, yes. And then later on, I found out we had mutual friends. I mean, that's how small the world oh, is. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> Yes, I mean, yeah. Then literally, we're the only one that probably does Taiwanese teas. A very small. Um, yeah. So going back to when you said earlier about being niche, I mean, that is helpful, right? When I'm Googling Taiwanese tea and the fact that you can ship, you know, across mm -hmm. the States or even internationally, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I think, I could, yeah, from a commercial, like if I had investors, if you will, they're probably like, what are you smoking? Like this is like the smallest commercial value category you could, you could put yourself in. And I said, yeah, that one. The one that nobody is interested in, I want to do that one. Um, so I think from that point is a little like crazy, but because it was so specific, it's Taiwanese, it's oolong teas. It becomes, I think it became ultimately a defining characteristics for this particular experience. And there is no prior, I call it tea baggage. Like you've never, for most people in America, they've, they know very little about Taiwan, number one. They know next to nothing with Oolong team for most of them. And so it became an independent uh, entity where there's no prior, there's no baggage. So it's yeah. a blank canvas for me to be able to kind of paint it and ex create that experience however I want it. Right. And that was sort of worth leaving my job for because I was never going to get to do that in any capacity. <laughs> um, I, so also that, like, I also yeah. like your branding and your packaging. I think it's very, it's a very nice way like, you know, for the westernized market, but you integrate a lot of Chinese elements to it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that was really nice, like a nice touch. Yeah. So that was actually um, done in the same vein of, you know, we want things to be accessible. So in that accessibility, 
as a person who doesn't speak Chinese or read Chinese character, you need to be able to pronounce the name of the tea so you can go back and find it. So all the teas, even though they all have Chinese names, most of as in 99% of it has an English name. And, you know, if there are, if they try to find it somewhere else, there is the Chinese name or there is like kind of the scholarly name or what it's called within the industry that you can find. Or if you have a Taiwanese friend, you'll be able to find the same thing. But the idea is that you can't sell something that people can't pronounce. And there, you, there can be 25 of them or 30 of them. They can't say the name and it becomes, it's transaction is <laughs> stuck. You know, you can't have that kind of. Um, we need to make sure this thing glides like a dolphin, you know, like really yeah. quick and smooth and there's no barrier. Like, I like this, I like this, and I want one of each. And that's the end. Like, so we try to make it um, pretty smooth sailing. And then you have the design element would remind you of something that is of that culture, um, but not so overwhelming that you feel disconnected from. Yeah. That's an ongoing thing. Like every day we design new packages. I'm like, which direction, which I don't know. I sometimes struggle a bit over my head. Like I don't know what I'm doing, but we'll see. No, that's, that's using that creative side that you were talking about very early on. In the conversation. You're now applying a lot of it into. I told you I wasn't an artist. Like I am not really, you know, I'm not like the, I don't have that. I can appreciate good ones. I can tell you good ones from bad ones, potentially. But I'm not like a good original creator. So sometimes... You have an idea and you tell someone to do it for you to create it. I guess so. I guess so, yeah. Iterations. Right, yeah. Illustrator, she'll tell you. (laughs) She's like the girls on that job. Um, That's amazing. I like that... just hearing you talk about that whole journey. I mean, I, I, you basically took it and I didn't have to cut in, cut in at all and ask you for the questions because I felt like your segues went really well and you went, it flowed really well. So um, I do, I mean, we're short on time, so we have to wrap up soon, but I, there are a few questions left that I have. Um, So I guess I want to start off by asking, uh, you know, now that we're kind of resurfacing from the pandemic, and you had said earlier it was a nice break for you and your husband to rethink about Tay and, and what you guys want to do with it going forward. If you could mm-hmm. share with us a little bit what the next plan is for, for Tay, right? Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I think before we were mostly tea room driven. So any sort of growth plan was around let's build another tea room that has more food component because that was actually really successful. And my husband is a pretty good cook so he really kind of has his own following on its own so that was originally our next plan is to have a restaurant close by the tea room and has more has a conceptually tea but is more there's more food and then we can then keep the tea room more just tea because you were getting to a point where there's full people and tea kind of you're coming in for different experience drastically different experiences and one room the single physical space, sometimes it's hard to accommodate both. So we were um, struggling in that way that we wanted to have a new space for more, more, more food. And then this one would be more tea, more or less in that direction. When the pandemic hit you, that other project fell through and we quickly moved online and found kind of a different way of operating that. Um, to me, I felt like there was more scale to, 
be had. And there were, um, I can now service California that I never was before. I can now service Texas, New Mexico, everywhere in America that has these people who love tea. And if you live in New Mexico, there is not a Taiwanese tea shop you can walk up to and get stuff. Or if you're even in Boston or California, California is one of our larger markets, you couldn't get this that easily accessible for you. And so to me, that almost felt like the door opened up. And what, how it didn't occur to me, it wasn't clear, but it didn't really occur to me in a real way. I felt like, oh, I can now service another geography. Yeah, um, yeah. And so to me, that became kind of a, a motivation to let's focus on this, um, on the web portion and um, have that as our one part of our integral part of our growth plan. Um and because of that, you know, you're shipping product and during the pandemic, we're shipping out boxes, hundreds of boxes in our tiny tea room that wasn't allowed to open to a degree when we were allowed to open, we couldn't afford to open because that serves at our fulfillment center to send out our packages for the web. So right. So we had to move. We had to create a, a place where we can actually store inventory and have um, a place to do our fulfillment and our online. So now we have a new space that we just recently moved in that um, basically we're going to centralize our operation and just have built a commissary kitchen, have a um, fulfillment and storage all in one place that's offsite, that's in Brooklyn, that is not non-commercial. It's basically kind of our all everything in one, like a headquarters, but like everything in one place. So, you know, we don't have to go to, two different storage units, my apartment, the store, the kitchen, you know, kind of like all over the place that it could be all consolidated from one place and then kind of setting up a good foundation that will be able to support the web and support the small tea room in the village. Um, And once we kind of have that narrowed and honed in, potentially we can do another small concept, same tea room, but, you know, in a different neighboring, maybe Brooklyn or another part of Manhattan. So you can then service more, uh, uh, in the tea room kind of experience in more, more places and yeah. having yeah. this kind of corporate, not corporate, I shouldn't say corporate, like having this um, warehouse fulfillment and operation center is really going to be helpful, I think, for our, um, for our growth. But I don't know, you know, I'm just still doing it sometimes. I'm like, am I going to wake up tomorrow and just no one would be interested in what we have to offer? I mean, it's as possible. I don't know. Look at how far you look at how far you've come. Um, So before we wrap up, uh, I always ask these last two questions, and and we you know we had talked about it earlier before we started recording, which is for those who are listening to your story, um, what or or you know I guess another way to put it is, if you know what you know now, and you were to tell your younger self what you know now, what would you say? Um, And then the second one would be. Uh, you know, in times of like you were, you know, you mentioned earlier, it took you about like five years or so between corporate mm-hmm. and then actually really leaving to start Tay. Besides for those two, you know, very impactful conversations you had with your mom and your friend, um, Mabel, mm-hmm. what other things kept you like sane, you know, like when you were like going like, I really, really hate my job. I really, really want to focus on my passion project. Oh, it's so frustrating, you know, 
besides having obviously a community of people who really supported you and encouraged you to to do this uh were there other things that you did for you you know for yourself that kept you sane i guess and or like mm -hmm. to deal with your like stressful job or like just you know to do your passion project at the same time so anyway so i'll leave you with those two yeah um the first one is if i were to tell my younger self or that i mean advice advice for a person i i think i think it's harder for me to tell my younger self because i felt like that journey was just it is what it was i, I couldn't really um <laughs> i might i might uh well i mean i guess in the same vein i would say trust your gut I had a gut feeling that I couldn't do a few things straight out of college. I knew I wouldn't work in finance. I knew I wouldn't work in consulting. Nothing wrong with those jobs. I just knew that that is not for me. Um, I need something with more, more of a human element, more of a variety. Of, like I couldn't do that. Even though everyone around me, that is the it thing to do. Like you, that's just what is cool. And I, I trusting your gut in the process of elimination, you don't have to know what you want, but you can have a very clear idea of what you don't want. And that is good to have. And that is good to know. And that is good to exercise upon, meaning I will not do that role. I will not do. I don't know if this is like an aging thing, but I feel like as I got older, I tend to trust my gut more. Um, and I think even when I was much younger, there is an idea of what you think you're going to do. Like as a child, I knew I need a bit, I would work in business. There was no question. I did, did all kinds of career, you know, internships and what have you, but I knew that I was going to always going to live in the business world. Um, I knew that I wouldn't do things like banking and consulting, which is very different from knowing that I would do, be working in the business world, but I knew I didn't want to do that. Uh, so there's some sort of, you know, your core self telling you things. And I encourage everyone, including I should have been more courageous when I was younger to listen to that voice and um, exercise upon that quicker. So that's, I would say that. Um, for anything I do to keep myself sane, um, I don't know. I think the, when I'm, I don't actually quite remember how I got through the days that are really stressful for work. Um, in fact, I potentially, when I was very stressed out at VS, I would channel my energy onto my project. And that is a sense of relief for me. And I still had a social life more or less, you know, I would go out or have dinners and hang out with friends. Um, but I do felt, feel like from an intellectual level, like that's what I had. My break was to work on my own thing. And that is a, a, sort of a, what I like doing. And it became a struggle in the end um, because I really thought that I could like, maybe I really could do something with this. Um, and for kind of, yeah, we were, I mean, we're still trying, you know, still trying. Um, Jerry's still out. We're only kind of what, six years old. Um, but the, for a, on a personal kind of well-being level, I do yoga, I do meditate, you know, it's just at a run. Like I, I do think keeping yourself active um, uh, in your mind, there's a lot going on in the world 
like a sense of calm that my friend kind of got into, got me into meditation and that sense of almost like cleansing to me. It's almost like you're kind of the meditative practice. Um, I don't do it well enough. Uh, you can ask her, but, uh, but that it's almost like going to the gym. You're just really trying to circulate every, uh, your mind and your body and your kind of well-being. And that is really what you have. Um, that's one of the most important things to keep keep yourself healthy. Um, because without that, you really can't do anything. You literally, like, I hate being sick. You, when you were sick, I mean, you just, you couldn't deliver. And when you have your own business, everyone's looking at you to deliver and you can't deliver because you're sick in bed. And so that I keep my mask on, you know, now even New York, you don't need the mask to, open your tea room, but like everyone, all the staff wears the mask because you want to stay healthy as much as you can. Um, so I would encourage anyone who, you know, having stressful situations and meditate, do yoga, exercise, run, or have some sort of a well-being, um, that, that time that set aside, you do that for yourself. Um, right. Even if it's like watching a Korean drama, you know, that if that makes you so happy and it's such like a removing uh, your attention to something else, that is for you, you know, do it. Yeah. So set the time. I just told someone else in another recording that I did um, when we talked about this, because her whole messaging was, you know, everyone will tell you to do yoga and meditate. And it was not for her. She said, it wasn't for me. I, I just couldn't do yoga, you know? And, and so she's just like, you know, try whatever works for you. It might not be yoga. It might not be meditation. It could be gaming, you know, like you said, or watching a, a, a Korean soap drama, right? Whatever works for you. <laughs> Yeah, you need, you kind of need to try it all and see, I mean, there are different days. Um, it, maybe, yeah, I'm not really necessarily saying you must do meditation or must do yoga or must watch a drama or whatever. It's like you said, it's really just anything that you have enjoyed as a child or if you like kind of people are obsessed over it, let's check it out. Why people are obsessed with Like maybe that would be one of your kind of break that you can have that breaks up the rhythm and the removes you from whatever it is that stress you out for a little bit. And the world is still slightly better and slightly more clear afterwards. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend that and set, set time for it. Set aside time for that. So make time. I will include um, all your social links, like on the episode resources so people can follow okay. you guys or even order Taiwanese oolong tea from your site um, <laughs> and maybe <laughs> for the episode um, we can sort out maybe like a, a which will add to and obviously for people who are in New York City or who are visiting New York City they should visit the, the tea yes we're open Tuesday through Sunday um, in the afternoon so noon to six there's little snacks there is all kinds of tea there is weekdays are very calm, which is, I love <laughs> I mean, I sometimes am jealous of the people sitting there on weekday, like people just like reading, having a pot of tea that's like steep for them. There's snacks, just relax. It's really nice. <laughs> well, I want to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come. Come to New York. Aren't you, aren't you coming? Uh, that's the plan. We'll see. I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, I was posted. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. This is great. Thanks for having me. Sharing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Curito Connects. For more Connects content, collaborations, and discoveries set to inspire you on your own individual journey, please head to our website at www.curito.co. Until next time, stay inspired and thank you for joining us at Curito Connects. Thank you.